0: Hello darlings, it's Rebecca. First up, I've got a massive apology for you. I am so sorry this episode is hilariously late and that we've effectively missed an episode out. Uh, This is because a combination of my work and my mental health has just meant that I haven't been able to get the episode done any sooner, which is a real shame because it is a great one. Demi is a lovely guest on top of being a lovely person and a brilliant poet, so I'm really pleased to be able to finally share this with you. The delay in getting the episode up does mean that some of our notice board recommendations were out of date, but I've got a couple of replacements which I'm going to do up front now. So first up, two awesome London Poetry Nights, Boomerang and Speak Equal, both of which are either defunct or dormant, depending on which team members you ask. They're both coming back and joining forces for one night only to raise money to fund Kaz Teague's Top Surgery. Kaz is a fantastic poet and a very dear friend to all of us at Dead Darlings Podcast, and we are really excited to be able to support them to get this vital, gender-affirming surgery. The event is on the 2nd of May at the Jago Pub in Dalston. The lineup hasn't been announced yet, but the teams behind Boomerang and Speak Equal include some of the best poets from the London spoken word scene. So if the fact that it's for an awesome cause isn't enough to tempt you to come along, the fact that it's going to be an awesome night of fantastic poetry really should. For more information, follow the Eventbrite link in the show notes and you can also find Kaz's GoFundMe there where you can find a bit more information about Kaz, why they're getting the surgery and what the money will go towards. Then the second event I want to let you know about is to do with our brilliant interviewee Demi Anta. She is celebrating the first anniversary of the publication of her collection Small Machine with an online event on April 30th where she'll be reading from the book. Again the Eventbrite link is in the show notes so if you like what you hear in the episode you'll have the chance to hear more of her work very shortly. We're working on sorting out our next interview but it may be slightly later in May than usual. Thank you so much for bearing with me darlings and I'm really sorry for the long wait. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Dead Darlings podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney.
1: I'm Laurie Eaves.
0: And I'm Hannah Hutzber. Dead Darlings is a monthly podcast for the spoken word community. Each month we'll be bringing you interviews, tips, inspiration and above all awesome poetry from the spoken word scene. We'll also be telling you what's on and where you can submit your work.
1: This month we'll be interviewing Demi Anta.
0: And we'll be hearing a poem from Ned Ashcroft. And we'll be giving you a preview of our book review episode where we'll be chatting about Whatever You've Got by Molly Naylor. And that will be out later in the month.
1: But first... What have you been up to since the last episode, Rebecca?
0: I've been to fucking poetry nights, is what I've been up to.
1: Whoa! My Tell brain us let about me out. My
0: brain fucking let me out, and I went and did poetry, which is very good for my mental health, though not so good for my sleeping patterns. Uh, but <laughs> yes, uh, so I went to process. I went to process's birthday uh, at the end of February and that was fantastic they've had a year as their as their kind of first year and uh mm-hmm. very sweetly Kayla and Tyrone who run the night were the features for that because they were like it's been a year we're gonna do it and it was it was very lovely and they did a thing which I've seen other poets do and mostly kind of in the sort of ex-boomerang sort of circle of poets like I think Jake and Tyrone have done it poets performing other poets work so they swapped oh, yeah. a poem Which is really good fun, actually, just Mm. watching people just find new things in it or sort of say, you know, I mean, uh, I've seen Tyrone do it with one of Kayla's before. And Kayla is Jewish. She has a lot of Hebrew words in her um, (laughs) poems. And Tyrone was just like, yeah, I don't don't know how to say that. But but it's just it's just delightful and funny. And it's kind of a yeah, it's a bit of an in-joke that you can kind of get in on very quickly. So I thought that was very lovely. So yeah, that was that was a really nice night. And seriously, Process is such a nice night, guys. Go to Process. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. And then we had Genesis, which is also a very lovely night. And I, for various reasons, haven't been able to make it for ages. And uh, it was lovely. Uh, and that was run by a certain Laurie Eaves with assistance from this woman called Hannah Hutzpah. And they were both very charming very lovely. Hey, Hannah. hey,
1: hey. We introduced Hannah as the glamorous assistant. Not she is the glamorous.
0: I insist I, I was feeling very glamorous. <laughs> one, one, one could be charming and glamorous. I thought the glamorous <laughs> went without saying, but we'll say it. Hannah is both charming, glamorous and able to assist.
1: Glamorous is harder to get across in podcast form. True. So our listeners <laughs> just kind of have to picture glam.
0: <laughs> Doing a big hair flip. And- yeah, she's there dripping in jewels. Um and uh, obviously we should we should also mention musical interludes from Joel Autison as well. Oh yeah. uh yes, we've gotta gotta mention the whole team. And it was just it was just a lovely night and I love Genesis. It's the nicest slam uh that I think <laughs> I've ever i yeah it is just it's just it's just got the atmosphere right and it's fun and there were a lot of new people last night weren't there a lot of mm-hmm. people who've never been to poetry before a lot of people who've never been to genesis before Actually, genesis gets a really good mix for that yeah i don't know if it's the proximity to the university the fact that it's in a cinema and they do quite a bit to promote it i'm not sure but it does it does get of... and people i think do come out of the the screens and sort of go oh what's what's going on there yeah. and then think oh maybe we'll go to that next month it's great um which means that sometimes the scoring can be a bit up and down, but it just makes it a lot more fun. And yeah, it's lovely. A slam is a big old game. and Genesis is how I prefer to play that game. So yeah, that was good. The other thing I did was I applied for Glastonbury. As I said, I was going to do yeah, um, My, yay, my um, professional, personal and poetic to-do list is now so long that I'm having very, very detailed stress dreams about it. And I okay. woke up the other night having completely forgotten about the Glastonbury deadline, but I remembered it in my dream.
1: Wow. And
0: in my dream, I was going, oh, shit, yes, I must do that. I need to sign up for mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. So I'm having very boring dreams, but I am. they are actually, <laughs> they are actually helping me remember deadlines. Jeez. So wow, that
1: sounds positive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to make of that. So, um, yes. So what have you guys been up to? I have
2: slowly been starting to get back on the horse with actually creating new things, just about. Um, new shit! Ooh, new, new shit! shit. Um, or I've been talking for literally years about how I have a poetry project on the go about objects, potentially with a working title, "Hoard," about um, objects and the meaning we kind of give them, and I started arranging the stuff that I've produced from, I don't know, just pre-pandemic till now. And I think I have a decent narrative arc. And then I looked at the poems on the list and the things that I was talking about in the poems. And then I went and now I need to go away and have a big, long think about whether I actually could even publish these without having to have a lot of, you know, when you've written something that's so personal that you're like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to have a chat with people in my life. Before this goes anywhere,
1: no, I don't know that feeling, Hannah. I never have those conversations. Yeah, publish it and then and then lose friends and relationships.
0: I mean, lots of oh. your collection was about your ex girlfriend. You don't, you, you were never going to run it by her. Like ex girlfriends don't count. You know, as long as you're not, oh yeah, that's about it, which you if both. you don't want to be in a poem, don't fuck a poet, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> and don't fuck with a poet. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm true. I... I, on the one hand I'm quite excited that something seems to be taking shape and on the other hand there's a big part of me that's doing it like
1: oh
2: I don't know um, but yeah I did that I got even more into houseplants than usual and I have something on the boil about uh, attempting to grow a lemon tree from pips I don't know I, I I've I've started writing things which are demonstrating that I am in my mid to late 30s at this point and broadly,
3: mm-hmm. I am
2: enjoying the pieces. And there is a part of me that goes, "This is never going to win a fucking slam." Is <laughs> uh, gardening, gardening. Oh, thank no God, someone's finally the tackling the meaty topic of
0: gardening. Um, but
2: if you yeah, go in like I
1: mean, that, I think it could win. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough.
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know, it, isn't, it is definitely leaning into the, you know, like we get up at the beginning of, of slams and open mics and go, listen, it's not all people writing about nature. But at some point, you get to a certain stage and yeah, you think, yeah, I but want that's a fucking nice shit. tree. It's a fucking nice tree, okay? And maybe it does <laughs> say something about the world. So, yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So... <laughs> There's that. There is I
2: seem to have become the de facto schoolkeeper at Genesis, so I now help run two different nights. Um but I really my also Indiana. need to I got Very a at GCSE hard. maths, so I I can do this. I say, um, as if my spouse did not turn up to Genesis as well last night and is much quicker at maths than me. Would look at the scores and then just like lean in and go, It's twenty seven point three or whatever it was. Right. <laughs> So, okay, good, I would what? have been using a calculator.
0: I maintain, and obviously I don't score, so, you know, if you're doing the scoring, like, yes, probably be good at maths, but the thing is, being bad at maths makes slams a constant surprise for me. I've no idea if I've got through it. It's always, it's always very yeah. really nice to, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yes. I went to Genesis,
2: I went to Insight, which I run, and we had um, a extremely <laughs> lovely um, writer, Matthew Keeley, who is based in Glasgow, but... Because Zoom, I have gotten to know. Um, and he does incredibly thoughtful, gorgeous pieces. And I'm going to have to keep in mind a specific and have him a, a, a Poet of the Month at some point because he is incredible. That is about it for me. How about Laurie? How has your Poetry Month been?
1: Me? Uh, well, we've already talked about Genesis. Uh, I was hosting, which is why you can hear that I sound a bit like I've been licking the bottom of a birdcage today um, because my voice isn't the best that it's ever been, but that's okay. Uh, Yeah, I've been doing a few little poetry bits. Uh, I've had a few, you remember those submissions that I was doing? I've Mm. had a couple accepted, so that's quite nice. They're not... Not out yet, but that's nice. I've managed to break my record from last year for accepted submissions already this year, so I'll take nice. that. Like. Nice. Nice. So, that is good. That's nice. Yeah, what's really weird is like everything that I've been submitting now is just the same stuff I was submitting this time last year. It's just this time for whatever reason, it's like, oh yeah, all right, we'll take that now. It's like, thanks <laughs> but i guess that just means you've got to keep going
2: what was last year's record
1: it was it was like two or three poems but i I've like uh i hadn't really done submitting to journals and things before that mm-hmm. and now it's higher than that for this year and it's feb it's march now so that's good um so that's a bit nice um been reading some poetry which has been very lovely i picked up after we recorded. Sam Grudging's book, uh, The Bible too, Um, because I enjoyed our conversation so much and have been reading it. Uh, I finished it. Um, I, uh, I say this in the nicest possible way. It's a wild book. Have you guys read it? It's absolutely <laughs>
0: yes.
1: wild. I have, I sh- like, no, I need to. <laughs> it's like it's feral. It's like I don't quite <laughs> understand what I'm reading, but I am enjoying it a lot. I don't understand quite how I'm meant to read it like what way up the book is meant to go or whether i'm reading right (laughs) to left or left to right or whether it's getting bigger or smaller it's uh there's a bit where um one of the poems is actually like um formatted after the formatting in house of leaves and it feels like reading that book but in poetry form it's absolutely uh bananas and i say that with love and like <laughs> appreciation because i very much enjoyed reading it so that was good
0: i feel like brilliant but slightly confusing is a vibe sam is is, is it actively yeah, aiming
1: for yeah absolutely oh yeah. absolutely um i picked up um the book sonnets for albert by anthony joseph which won the t.s elliott prize at the beginning of the year mm-hmm. um I think we recorded our Mannerism episode just before or just after. Mannerism was shortlisted but didn't get it because mm. it went to Sonnets for Albert. That's a really interesting book that I think we should try and cover at some point. Um, it's a collection of sonnets about um, the poet's uh, absentee father in Jamaica. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, just a really interesting thoughtful collection that I really enjoyed reading and uh, had a lot of fun with Um, a couple of others as well yeah I've uh, been I finally got around to eat all we both star by Victoria Kennefick, which is really cool for our book club this month we're doing a bad baddie book um, whatever you've got by Molly Naylor so I've also picked up a couple of other bad Betty books that I'm excited to dive into so that'll be pretty fun Um, Genesis which we've talked about I don't know what else has been going on that's been my little bit of time in poetry. It's been a short February's a short month. It is. That's <laughs> we true. moved through it quick.
0: That's true. Right, shall we do our hot topic then? Should we have a little chat on our Hot
1: Topic
0: Yeah, I thought what we could talk about this month um was something that's kind of come up a couple of times in different guises. And there was one night in particular that we were all at that it's kind of it it, it, it was something we were really chatting about, which was years ago. But um whether or not performance poems should, particularly those that purport to be from personal experience, should actually be true. So like I said, there was an incident a few years ago that we were all at. And the guy that won the slam had done this poem and he was a, a white guy from South Africa, I think, um, yeah. who did a poem about child soldiers being kidnapped but it was from the point of view of the child soldier sort of describing watching his mother and sister be sexually assaulted and murdered and then dragged mm. away to serve Jeez, and yeah. it was quite visceral and it just felt a bit fucking weird um mm. which you know because the other side of that is are we going to say that all poems should be literally true so there's no room for any sort of leap of the imagination or, mm. you know, because yeah. that point, well, you know, no one could put on a play. It must always be about the self in ways that are quite yeah. dull. But this, I Boring. think... Boring. <laughs> yeah, and and quite puritanical almost. But it was really fucking uncomfortable. And I wonder if it's, I don't know, something about having a framing device in there that kind of makes it clear that there's a layer of artifice in here.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first there's kind of two parts I think to tackling it one Mm. is the fact that any any poetry any writing is a translation of the truth it is not Mm -hmm. the actual truth of something that happened exactly as it is and in doing the translation of whatever it is that happened to be true you're going to make decisions consciously or unconsciously about how you make that translation like uh when i was writing biceps um there would there were details where i changed things either for um artistic effect or i changed things because it kind of made it it cohered a little bit better um or maybe i felt like what the way that i am changing this is um is not the literal truth but the change that i'm making uh, doesn't lose the truth of the poem in it. Mm. It, it mm. what I'm t- st- what I'm talking about is still true even if I'm, you know, changing details like I uh, changed the color of like bed sheets I think it was in one of the poems because <laughs> then it, it because then I had like oh actually if I di- if I changed the color of them here then that's got a nice like echo of something else happening in mm-hmm. the collection elsewhere for example mm. like for an artistic effect um and I think a poem can still speak to truth without Mm. being literally I have written down a diary entry level of truth.
2: Yeah, but there might be things like if you change like three details about something, then you can't identify the person that it's about. And that gives people some privacy and potentially gives you some plausible Mm. deniability Mm. about your writing. Like there's ways you can, there's this thing I want to talk about, but I don't want to go him, him over there that person I knew three mm. years ago, that's the one I'm writing about. Like, I think mm. that is completely legit and frankly sensible and moral. Um,
1: yeah. That goes back to what you were talking about when you were in, when we were talking about earlier. You know, yeah. Your project, what to write
2: and who about to, about. yeah. <laughs> mm. what, how much of your life.
1: The fact that you are having this layer of artifice allows you to write it.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. but Yeah. I suppose two things. I mean, one, yeah. Like you say, all writing is translation and Poetry, it's supposed to like we keep using the word literally true, and we're using it in that mm. slightly not actually literal. Because if you're talking about the literal truth, you know, mm. I have a poem about my friend leaving a, a, a shitty relationship in which she grows wings and flies away, <laughs> like literally feathers burst out of her back oh and my she flies God, that away. That happened. Yeah, it was very traumatic. She's fine. She's got a really good vet. You know, it's great. uh <laughs> No, like. We don't expect poems to be literal truth. I suppose what's different between the kind of the examples that I'm thinking of that made me feel about Uncomfortable at Nights and the kind mm. of things that you're saying about like is that what the examples that you guys have kind of given around your work is is distancing yourself from a truth, whereas mm. what seemed to be going on in those poems was claiming a truth that wasn't mm. yours, mm. Um, which I thought was, yeah, and there was something appropriative and there was something odd about this white guy and i you know and i don't i don't necessarily
1: it was uncomfortable
0: it was Mm. uncomfortable and i don't necessarily fall in with the kind of like i think sort of within literature there's the kind of own voices movement right and and i completely agree with that that poets oh sorry writers from the you know marginalized groups should be telling their own stories and should have the space to do that i don't think that's Mm. necessarily the same thing as saying that you know writers who are not from those marginalized groups shouldn't tell stories about those people, but I think they have to be very careful about how they do it. And, and and there's something different with a novel was when you're on stage claiming it yourself. Even though, I don't know, like maybe it's more obvious that this, this very middle-class kid was never a fucking child soldier. But the other thing is that slam poetry, a,
2: the vast majority of the time, if there are pronouns it's i like it is mm. it is mm. kind of a genre expectation yeah that you are speaking with your own voice um and also mm. i've had um a couple of times for like one afternoon at a time i was a guest lecturer um at a university creative mm. writing course La did Telling people about how to make it as a writer, professionally. But one of the questions that I was asked by one of the students was, basically, does she have to write about the traumatic stuff? Like, she clearly had something in mind, and she wanted to be Mm. a good poet. And she didn't Mm. want to write about that thing, but she thought that she had to.
1: In order to be authentic and true.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I advised her that she absolutely did not have to do anything she wasn't comfortable with. And also, frankly... There's a lot to be said for, like, honing your craft until you're ready to do the big thing justice. If there's something that you know you want to write about mm. eventually, like, rushing into it when you're also still yeah. learning how to write well just seems like a kind of recipe yeah. for disaster. And Well, not a recipe for disaster, but it seems like, yeah, you're potentially messing yourself up in two different ways.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the other thing I also find myself thinking is, like fucking more fool me for expecting everything to be true right there is this odd Mm. and i don't know that there's many other art forms where we sort of expect it in that way you're right there is that thing about it's i it's person it's about the self and again this sort of touches on sort of stuff we've said before about slam but you know i I spoke my poetry as well and so that sort of trauma mining right that goes on that sort of trauma competing which isn't healthy but then like I can't work out if that's encouraging people to mind their own traumas or if it's sort of saying, oh, if you don't have a trauma, just borrow one from somebody else, from a fucking yeah. child soldier. Like,
1: I think going back, I said, oh, there's two things about this. And then yeah, I said sorry. one and then and then the <laughs> second one I didn't get to. But it, it's great because I think the ways you've both been talking about it have like illuminated what would have been a pretty crap point. So for me at the moment, I'm working on a project that to me is fiction. Mm. Um, it's poetry, but to me, in my mind, it's very much. This is fictional. This is not a truth of of me or myself. I mean, obviously, it is because as soon as you know, if you read a fictional novel, you get something of the writer in it. You yeah. get something of their thoughts and feelings in it. So it is, it is illuminating to truths in ways. But it's mm. it, and it is about the self in ways. But. To me, I've got this project at the minute that I'm working on that I, in my head, am thinking, this is fictional. And I think it's really interesting that the terms you you guys brought up there, like um, saying that when you perform poetry, there's a genre expectation, as it were. Mm. It's like, I expect with this genre that what I'm going to see is true. I expect with this genre, if I'm a writer, that what I have to say is true and that it's particularly with slam poetry that it's got to be in order to tell my truth it's got to be something that's kind of dark or traumatic mm. or, or a bad thing that has happened and if you don't have that then you've got to somehow claim that and claim this kind of victimhood in what you're writing and saying even if it's not true and I think particularly when it's an egregious grab like that uh, like the ones you've brought up Rebecca it leaves a really bad taste in the mouth for the audience. But where is the line between between this person has overstepped and claimed, claimed this narrative in a way that is distasteful and feels dishonest and feels like it's exploitative of that genre expectation? And where is the, this person is telling a piece of fiction and mm. therefore they can kind of do what they like is it in the way that it's framed? Like as as a as a performer, do you have a an obligation to realise that the people you're performing to are going to assume is truth and therefore you should be framing it as fiction? Or mm-hmm. does the writer or does the performer actually not owe the audience anything on that?
0: I think a framing device can be easy to put in and and can yeah. add something if it's done well. And I guess there's also something about actually did did you need to use the pronoun I, going back to what Hannah mm-hmm. was saying could you not have written an equally powerful poem narrating what is happening to he? He, this happened to him. Like, mm. Yeah, I think that, it's the
1: part of that genre expectation thing. Yeah, that said.
0: Yeah, yeah, I just think actually, you know, you could do the same thing, you could tell the same story and probably be equally powerful and affecting without kind of claiming it in a weird way.
1: Very rarely see third-person performance poetry.
0: I do a lot of you. I've realised, uh, and it's often actually mm-hmm. when I, am I do loads about, of you. <laughs> yeah, it's often particularly when I'm talking about myself because I don't. I think mm. I can be used quite clumsily sometimes, mm. um, and also sometimes it's a bit of a distancing. If I, actually when things that I'm talking about that happen to me that that are a bit hard, well, I don't really want to. Yeah. I do you. I do this. This is this is something else. Um, mm. So yeah, but I just I just think like framing devices aren't that hard to put in I guess
1: and not necessarily even in the work in the the way that that you introduce it like Mm. for example last night or Genesis I did a a poem that's part of that project that's uh, fictional and I introduced it as being part of this fictional thing and therefore I think yeah you set an expectation it doesn't necessarily have to be within the work itself right
2: I've got a poem called No Little Words, which is about that moment where you're not quite saying I love you. And you're kind of like dancing around it and you're kind of like waiting to see what the other person might do if you said it. Um, And I submitted it for, I think it was Poetry Rivals. And when you got shortlisted, you got invited to this big kind of slam thing and there was a guy who had done a poem all about carpe diem and seize the day and he'd done a lot of shouting and repeating that advice throughout his poem and then i had done my poem about not quite saying i love you um and both of us must have submitted our poems months before to then be shortlisted and at this event but he came up to me at the interval with my poem about not quite saying I love you, which was a years-old poem about a relationship that was even years older than that, and he repeatedly told me to seize the day and tell
0: her what I thought of her.
1: Yeah. <sighs> so the truth that as it was then is not necessarily the truth as it is like, before. Like, yeah. I mean, also,
0: that's, that's, like, one step worse than unsolicited poetry advice. It's unsolicited life advice.
2: Unsolicited life advice? Oh, assuming God, that the thing that I had a poem about was my present and current mental state yeah
1: not just not just a truth but your truth right now
0: (laughs) yeah i mean that guy like you're a dickhead if you're giving people life advice based on hearing their poem anyway like fuck you but what there's something about poetry being kind of such a and particularly open mics and slams being quite grassroots being quite accessible being you know very open to people that you do get people who aren't like who aren't necessarily almost viewing it as art with that sort of artifice, right? There is that emotional outpouring aspect, that poetry is therapy aspect, which I know a lot of people find questionable, but also, you know, it can be really useful for it's some people. And, yeah. and if that's what they want to go do. So that the line or like the the scene is so much more fuzzy and blurry. And yeah, it sort of speaks to a kind of, that there is a sort of naivety and that sounds really patronising and that isn't quite what I mean.
1: I think there's there's something really in what Hannah said about thinking of it as genre. I think, like, if you're thinking of it as a genre, or if audiences are coming to it thinking of it as a genre, then they're thinking of it as this is true because that's what I'm coming to see.
0: Mm. And I think I disagree with that as being like. As being the actual case that, you know, part of the genre convention of spoken word poetry is you must write a poem about yourself and it must be true and it must be traumatic as hell, I think is bullshit. But I agree Mm. that I think there is that expectation there.
1: Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what conclusion we're coming to in this hot topic. We
0: haven't, but we haven't come to any conclusions so far. We've had a really interesting discussion. So that's been good. Shall we do an interview?
1: Let's do an interview.
0: This month's interview is with Demi Anta. Demi Anta is a poet and actor originally from California, now based between London and Berlin. She has toured extensively as a spoken word artist, including appearances at Glastonbury Festival, the Scottish Storytelling Centre, Poetry Ireland, and the Bristol Old Vic. Her written work has been published by Magma, Banshee and Ninth Letter, among others. She has recently published her debut poetry collection, Small Machine, with Right Bloody UK. The collection was called Tender Visceral Beautifully Vulnerable by Musa Akwonga and Strikingly Luminous and Soothing by Chanel Miller. People's Poetry Podcast has called her the Ray Davies of spoken word and you can find out more about her at www.demianta.com. Demi, thank you very much for joining us. Would you like to kick us off with a poem? Has anyone ever said no? <laughs> no, because poets like the attentions.
1: Oh, yeah, no, they never go. You know what? I just don't, don't, I'll
0: don't really want to share my poetry.
4: Alright, then I would I would be happy to. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> um, Alright. Uh this is called Fog Had Entered the Home, and it's from my collection Small Machine. Fog had entered the home. Rain for ten days and bread for one. Croissant and broodchin toast breastbone as I crest the stairs. I woke, the cat's white toes nestled in my ribcage. Through stained glass, my landlord sweeps leaves into piles, his hearing aid glinting. A honeybee thrums against glass, small machine, summoning thunder. And I am in a dream where Sam's cheek is pressed against my thigh But there in time to open the window, scold the cat, gather in my arms the rolling quiet of her fur. Sometimes I think I dreamt it all these years, the rain and the men and the bread from the corner shop, the cat who rests her chin on my chest each morning, waiting for my eyes to crescent open, the bees released, ungrateful, never bothering with goodbyes. Nice. Oh, That's lovely. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Oh, Poetry, man, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it can be. Yeah, I feel like I'm very fragile this week, and I think it's PMS. I think what oh. you call PMT. Is it the same PMS and PMT? Yeah, same yeah. thing. So, yeah, I just have been, like, bursting into tears really randomly, (laughs) and a good poem will just, like, (laughs) absolutely floor you if you're
0: in a state like that.
1: Okay, so our challenge this interview is to try and get Demi to cry, uh, (laughs) or to try and not get her to cry, depending on which is the more
0: difficult...
4: I'm easily led <laughs> down that path, I think.
2: It has to be via something being moving rather than just, you know, being mean. That that doesn't count. Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, there are interviewees it, yeah. that, that we have made cry for all the wrong reasons. So many. But Rebecca's great at editing, so people barely ever find out. Oh, my God. Oh, should we do some questions? Yes, right. you, I was going to say to you guys, wanna,
0: do you want to start with a kickoff question?
1: Sure. So, we usually start by asking our interviewees how they got into poetry in the first place. So, I'm going to ask the question Demi, how did you get into poetry in the first place?
4: Well, in the first place, um, in the beginning, uh, there was a, a young girl in a desert in California, and I think. I was given assignments to do in school like I remember really vividly being six and writing acrostic poems about sunsets and getting super super into it and I really loved writing books and I would kind of draw and illustrate loads of books and stuff when I was small. And so my mom put me into a poetry class like a community class when I was maybe 12, 13 and it was me and a bunch of old ladies like everyone was (laughs) retired and then it was me. And I met just wonderful people and everyone was so generous and supportive and very encouraging and I think found me quite novel and funny and (laughs) sort of like very precocious. Um, So yeah, I started to sort of see it as a hobby and then something that I really enjoyed and I felt that maybe I was good at or I was getting good at it and I wrote a... My first chapbook, so my first pamphlet, when I was also around 15 or 16. Uh And started to think about what I wanted to do in school. And annoyingly, my mom was always like,
2: oh.
4: well." So first of all, my mom is Austrian, and she has a very strong accent. Um, But so she said, like, oh, damn me. You will be a writer. I know it. It's meant to be. I can see it so clearly, and I
0: found that very annoying. I was just I, like, how can you be an artist with supportive parents? <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel I know. like
1: those two things don't go together at all. I feel I'm, like you've yeah, got to yeah, be yeah. told you're going to be a doctor, a doctor or... Yeah.
0: or just at least have a sensible fallback. No, yes.
4: my parents are so. Um, Wild. I mean, they're both very crazy, I will say in the nicest way, but it's true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so she they've both been always very supportive and quite into writing themselves, like not professionally, but just have enjoyed it a lot as well and big into reading. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but, you know, of course, because of that, I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. And I came up with loads of other ideas in between. But by the time I actually did apply for my undergraduate degree, I did apply for creative writing. And I was doing a little bit of like readings here and there. And I had a poetry mentor when I was doing the first pamphlet, also when I was quite young. Um, But yeah, it really developed in school. And um, when I was 18 and just arriving at university, so literally the week before we started our classes, we had a... I'm trying to think what what the right word is like a big kind of ceremony like a welcome ceremony for all of the freshmen and mm-hmm. i went with my peers who were in my same dorm and we were all in the same college together so not all of us were studying writing but a group of us were um and we saw this guy perform we couldn't even see him because we were so far back from the stage but he mm-hmm. did spoken word he did poetry and we were all like wow, like super taken with this. And I had heard some spoken word through YouTube uh, Mm -hmm. also when I was 16, 17.
1: feel like that's a big thing for people of our generation.
4: Yeah, I think definitely. And I know, you know, like uh, people talk about button poetry and stuff like that. Mm. And I I don't think it was even button, but I think it it was a U.S. poet. So more kind of it was from a poetry slam. Um, Mm. this very very famous video by Anis Mujgani where he does Shake the Dust and another Mm. poem and they're super super beautiful and um, and I was so moved by them they're really these uplifting kind of life affirming poems and I thought wow I wish that I could do that but I was very shy and when I saw this teacher perform I found out that he did a class in the school and Um, So we signed up. My new friend who was sitting next to me was like, let's try it. (laughs) And so we were also the youngest in the class because normally I think you had to be a junior or something to sign up. But we sort of had special, special access through. We were in like a weird part of the college. So we signed up and it was very, it was very scary. And I think I did my first poem probably with my eyes closed um, (laughs) and shaking. (laughs) Yeah, shaking to my toes, you know, but, um, but we loved it. And we both kind of found our voices really strongly there. And the teacher, whose name is Kip Fulbeck became a very strong mentor of mine for years. Still, I mean, I still write to him when I, have questions professionally or just like life questions he's mm. he's been very amazing to me
0: so yeah that was really it amazing um and then i mean since then you've been kind of part of a number of different poetry scenes obviously yeah, sort of the, the, the one true. there yeah. and then sort of london and berlin and i was just mm. wondering sort of how they kind of compare with each other are there any really obvious differences between them in terms of stuff like kind of attitude or or the type of material and the style you get or sort of just the the ways in which crowds behave Mm
4: -hmm. yeah for sure I mean there are loads of differences I feel like also you know I have some experience but I'm definitely not an expert so I'm sure there's so much that can be said and analyzed for those questions but I think like, a funny thing, I remember when I first came to the UK to perform, the first gig I was hired to do in England was Glastonbury, which was obviously,
0: like, huge. Just, just yeah, yeah, oh, yeah you are coming in small there. Uh.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is why I have, like, a very strange relationship with poetry in the UK since I've moved here, because I think I listen to friends now or people who in the scene talk about these different events and stuff. And I'm like, I sort of know of that, but I wasn't here at the right uh-huh. time and I didn't come <laughs> up with everyone in that way. So it's, yeah, it's quite strange. Like I feel sort of part of it, but also sort of outside of it still, you know, which anyway, it's fine, it takes time. But, um, but yeah, so because of that, uh, I remember Faye um, Roberts who was writing our descriptions, like we're doing the blog that year. Uh-huh. and said about me something like that I had a very sort of typical American slam poet style and I was like wow. oh <laughs> should I be offended by that I don't know <laughs> what does that well, mean you well know? look
1: Faye was just laying it out they were just putting it on the table they were like yeah look all the British poets are self deprecating all the time. That's our thing. <laughs> and there's Americans coming here. She's coming to here. Be with sincere. Confidence.
0: <laughs> yeah. Earnestness. She might actually like herself, which just isn't on.
4: <laughs> Trust me, I don't. So it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of you. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of, uh, also, I don't, uh, it's not that I I did not actually take offense to it. I thought it was quite just funny and interesting to think. Yeah oh, they see us like we see each other in different ways. And Mm. we're known in the US for this kind of style. Um, And because in between I had been in Berlin, which is just a fucking free for all stylistically, (laughs) like you go to a slam and nobody performs in the same way, sometimes not Mm. in the same language. Very often people are not performing in their native language either. and so I, like, I had this period of like this kind of loosey-goosey thing where we weren't really comparing. like. It wasn't really about the finer points of performing. It was like, wow, that person brought a totally different energy, and I haven't seen that before in performance or in a poetry setting or slam setting. Um, so it kind of took coming here to sort of see those differences, I think, for me more. And I've also performed a lot in Ireland and in Scotland and and I think in Ireland, especially, there's quite a uh, specific style as well. But then my Irish poet friends would tell me in every region in Ireland, there's a specific (laughs) style. So that's the thing is like I think you have to really tour around a lot and get to know people super well and see those things for yourself to see the finer the finer differences.
1: But, so what are the yeah. fine problems that we've got in the UK? That's, oh. that's really what Rebecca's driving at. <laughs> oh, tell pro- us, tell us what we're doing wrong.
4: No, no, sir. I would like to stay here. <laughs> um, no, I. I don't. I don't see it that way at all. Actually, I think the reason I ended up here is because I feel that. There are way more opportunities here for poets than in the U.S., I think. Hmm. Though, I don't know, I'm, I'm planning to go back um, for a visit and maybe to do some shows in the fall in the U.S., and it's the first time that I'll perform there in eight years or something. But I, I think my analysis, my expert analysis, is that because the U.S. is so massive and it's so difficult to get around it without a car... Um, and even with a car it's quite expensive as well it's really limiting to get in between cities and to do like oh I'm going to do a small tour I'm going to do you know 20 dates or something or even 10 dates like going to 10 different places could be quite a financial burden Mm -hmm. and to go from like the hot spots like the big hubs you know New York to LA to Chicago Seattle Portland like it's not easy. And so I don't think, I think it's much harder for probably people to be fair, people in any art form where there's not a huge mm. amount of commercial money, sadly, to create this kind of community it's like, you can create community, but it probably will be much more local to you and much more like, what can mm. you get to with a car, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas here, obviously like I've been really lucky. I've mostly take trains everywhere with a coach <laughs> And have been able to do gigs um, and, you know, get a, well, it's not good, but get a cheap flight, right? And be able to jump off to Berlin again, or Mm -hmm. I was in Amsterdam also for something last year. And it's doable, it's possible if you're here. Mm -hmm. So I think that opens up huge possibilities for people because... You really it's like being a small band, you know, when you're when you're not Lem Sissé or Holly McNish, (laughs) right? Like you have to kind of cultivate this energy and go out and and be seen by people. And that's what you have to do to bring your work to the world. Like it's not just going to come to you. You have to go to it in some sense, you know?
1: Yeah, no roadies. That's
4: more doable. Not yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, also, poets don't have a lot of equipment to carry, in fairness.
1: No, well, we don't. Some people have a lot of loop pedals and stuff, don't they?
4: (laughs) I have a lot of uh, hair supplies, which (laughs) the the people at Glastonbury (laughs) would tell you about.
1: (laughs) You insisted on a separate (laughs) separate (laughs) separate dressing room.
2: (laughs) I mean, if you're intending to sell a lot of books, they're not light things if you're carrying them Mm. from A to B.
1: No, it's true. That's
2: very true, Hannah. Books are not light. I
4: actually had a horror story getting to my first gig of my tour last year, which was in Edinburgh. I think the first show was Loud Poets, whom I'm sure you're familiar with, those wonderful people. Um, But yeah, I, I basically was taking the train from London. Actually, I first went to Aberdeen. Very long story, but I was determined to go horseback riding. Rebecca, hey. <laughs> um, we hey see. my and <laughs> poetry friend. Yay! Yes, Horse Girls for Life. Um, anyway, it didn't happen because I was kind of ill. But I went to Aberdeen anyway and then took the train back down to Edinburgh and then went to Glasgow and from there I went to Berlin. But for the train journey... I thought, oh, I can just bring, I can bring extra books, I'll sell them. And then I'll free up that space so that I can take my like one tiny allotted suitcase, you know, Uh for my flight. Uh And so I had a massive duffel bag of books. Actually, I think I have it next. It's just very (laughs) big. And I stuffed it. And then I had my suitcase. And I thought, well, it takes me 30 minutes to get to um, St. Pancras, you know, and then I realized that's, 30 minutes not carrying anything, like walking at a normal speed, not yep. slowed down, <laughs> pushing, oh. <laughs> like a massive crate of stuff, basically. Yep. And I, I nearly missed my train. I got oh. on I got on two minutes before it left, Ouch. and then I had to just get on and just push all of my things through the entire train <laughs> because I was sitting in the last carriage, and it was horrible.
2: Speaking <laughs> of books, uh, Small Machine. Tell us all about it, please. Yes.
4: So my first collection is Small Machine. Um, It came out with Right Bloody. And Right Bloody is a very interesting publisher because they actually started in the US, like me. (laughs) But (laughs) they have um, branches in Canada, Right Bloody North, and they have Right Bloody UK, which is published uh, and edited by Fern Beattie, another wonderful poet. And um, they have been active here for I think three years now this might actually be now the coming on the fourth year of releases um so it's still quite a small operation in the UK I think I was the third or fourth to come out with a book with them um and yeah it's just been a very delightful process I heard Fern talk on a different poetry podcast actually and I thought immediately that she just sounded very cool and I loved how she talked about the idea of it because it's definitely also a spoken word publisher in particular um, and I thought this would be a place where I would be understood <laughs> and appreciated <laughs> because some sometimes you know the, the spoken and page poetry debate rages on so it's very nice to be able to have those conversations and be um, yeah with someone who gets it very well. Uh, And yeah, so the book was accepted in 2021, just as I was leaving Berlin to come to London, and it was published in April last year um in the midst of me doing my master's degree which I would not recommend to anyone don't do that <laughs> oh, well. interesting. it was very stressful this time a year ago <laughs> yeah.
0: I was gonna say that that's two quite kind of time-consuming kind of yeah pressure thing. things yeah
4: it was very 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 intense and also I was in the midst of doing my our Shakespeare section of school so my degrees in acting and um we had a I think seven weeks six week long Shakespeare project and uh, it was I I think probably easily the most demanding of the course and my teacher was very kind to actually give me days off to work on the book which she said we'll just treat it as if you're an actor you got a job that's normal that you have Mm -hmm. off days for rehearsal like Mm non-availability she said this is your work as well so tell me how much time you need and I asked very like may I please have three days (laughs) and she said yes (laughs) and yeah I could I don't think I could have done it without those you know committed days because basically I was going to school coming home and directly working on the book all night as well as like tour planning and all of that kind of stuff as well so yeah it did get published but I think the less glamorous side that a lot of people probably don't realize if they haven't gone through a book publishing process is that you have to do so much work with the marketing as well Mm -hmm. and all that kind of preparation and very few publishers have the kind of budget and resources to do that for you and to like Mm -hmm. get you reviewed in a major newspaper or get you featured here or there or set up a tour so that falls to you basically and it's very time consuming it's like a completely different job than the writing as well. So I like it, but it was a very intense time.
0: Mm. And I mean, speaking of that kind of traveling around and that sort of need mm-hmm. to tour, like one thing I found really striking about Small Machine is the way that the poems sort of e- evoke a sense of place. So I mean, particularly you mm-hmm. get this idea of what it is to be in Berlin. You like, sort of end up thinking of Berlin in quite subtle ways like it's it's a backdrop for what's going yeah. on um, yeah. and I just wondered how you kind of go about kind of capturing the essence of a place in a poem is that something you're sort of mm. conscious of trying to achieve
4: well yeah it's such a good question so one of the people who I kind of met through the book is an author called Rory McLean and Rory McLean wrote one of my favorite books ever but it's my favorite book about Berlin which is called Berlin, imagine a city, and it's a very creative approach to talking about Berlin's history, which is exceptionally long, very, very interesting, obviously with quite dark stories as well as very sort of beautiful and joyous ones, um, sort of everything in between. And it's historical, It's slight. some things are slightly fictionalized, but it's mostly non-fiction, And I read it, and it's prose, but I was very moved by it. And I think when I started thinking about that book again, years later, working on my book, it all kind of made sense to me finally. uh, This is kind of what my book is about as well. Like it's, It's not just about my story, the poems are very personal, but it's sort of about existing in that particular city during those years that I was there. And it really starts and ends with the time that I was there. So when I started thinking about place, it all kind of clicked together finally like this is what the book is actually about so place was very important in that sense that it tied things together thematically um but I think the other interesting thing what I've been thinking about a lot recently is about the idea of travel writing because Rory I think would call himself a travel writer and i spent i've spent time with him now um, basically i asked him for a quote for the book and he really kindly agreed and then we we've, we've become friends and he's sort of mentored me a lot and he's a super super lovely like such a kind person it's unbelievable but uh i never really thought about travel writing as what he did as that book i never thought about berlin imagine a city as a mm. travel book necessarily Um, Because it wasn't about someone, oh, I've arrived and now I'm going to discover what the city is about. And it wasn't Bill Bryson's style and it wasn't a guide or anything like that. Mm. Um, And then I started thinking a lot about other writers that I really love who've written about place in a powerful way, like Annie Arnaud, who just won the Nobel Prize for literature. John Berger also has a few really incredible essays that are about place, but also about personal history. And um and yeah, it's only only very recently that I've realized oh what I'm doing is also kind of connected to travel writing and I never really thought about it like that. Um and that's I think sort of where I'm interested in exploring further also since the book.
2: And the poems that you've written span both English and German. Could mm-hmm. what is the process like creating a bilingual poem?
4: Yes. Also, great question. Um, so it started quite organically that I think probably the first book, the first poem, sorry, that I wrote that had both English and German was this poem, Ode to Sommerspassen, which means ode to freckles. Sommerspassen literally means summer sprouts, mm. like they're <laughs> sprouting on your skin during the summer. <laughs> oh, it's a lovely it's <laughs> a word. a beautiful image. It's very funny as well. And I just love this word and I love a lot of German words. And I thought there's so much humor in German and there's sort of these really delightful things. But German gets a bad rap as being this like really aggressive language. Mm. And I thought, well, that's not true to my experience. I think, you know, I need to write something about that. I really just wanted to highlight those words and kind of celebrate them and celebrate this other language of mine, which is Mm. also my parents language and their parents, parents languages. And um, yeah, so of course I had to use the words, you know, because even if you don't understand it as a listener, you can appreciate the sound, at least the melody. And it's about that as well. And then in the book, I have translations, So you can under- you can actually then read and see what it means, too. So it does make sense if you read it. Um, <laughs> if you understand in German, it's not just like words, you know. Yeah puzzles or whatever
0: and this um, was a conversation yeah. we had actually uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about mm-hmm. Warsan Shire um, that mm-hmm. um, I, I, there's a few like so Joelle Taylor's book Cunto has like a glossary of like words because mm. she's writing about gay bars and she has a glossary yes. in the front yeah. of the book Warsan Shire had a glossary in the back of the book and we were sort of saying oh you know you kind of don't realise it's there and then you're like oh no I was meant to try and understand mm. those words so it was quite nice to have the translation there where it felt like you were sort of saying like I want to use this word but here's the meaning as well but yeah. yeah it was sort of drawing attention to itself almost in a really interesting way exactly
4: there in footnotes yeah I'd, yeah we had that discussion as well in the editing process and in the book layout process but I thought visually I quite like a footnote as well mm-hmm. and um, I think it's nice to, be, to have them there and to understand you can reference them quickly if you want to you know mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah I think footnotes can make things feel a bit more chatty sometimes if you get it right it's a little bit like sometimes you make it feel academic but sometimes it's a bit like this is what this means by the way this is what's going on yeah <laughs> uh, yes definitely
4: nice. I, I really like you know experimental prose forms as well or book forms or taking advantage of those kinds of things and doing something different with them so I think mine are not even they're not even so crazy like there, there aren't too many weird surprises in the footnotes but <laughs> it's sort of a nice surprise in itself to have this added element for understanding. And the other thing I would say about bilingual poetry or writing in general, um, something I'm very passionate about because I grew up with a German-speaking mother. Actually, my dad is German as well, but he spoke more English at home. Um, I am used to understanding the world in these two ways. My mom and I often talk and flip back and forth between the languages and my life in Berlin was very much like that as well. And mm-hmm. I love it. It makes me feel really at home. Like it, if I'm speaking with someone, like a German friend, and then we switch to English, or uh, we speak actually usually maybe more English, but then can use a German word because it makes more sense in that mm-hmm. moment. Um, it's something super comforting to me. And it's kind of hard to explain, maybe if you haven't had that experience or you don't have that experience. Uh, And I think actually, though a lot of people do, many people grow up with at least two languages, sometimes Mm. more. And Mm. living in Berlin, especially, it's so multicultural and people are speaking, you know, like German is the national language, let's say. English is the de facto in actuality (laughs) language. Then you have huge populations from other countries, from Turkey, from... um, Yeah, like Vietnam, like many, you know, there are lots of different languages around you all the time and you can always switch around. And it's so beautiful and such a kind of magical thing. Like coming from the U.S., I did have a lot of friends who were Spanish speakers and I also studied Spanish in school, but I didn't quite have the same sensation, I guess, that I did later in life of appreciating it in such a Mm. strong way. And um, and I think I I wish that there was more media in general that spoke to people who have that experience. And when I see it in film and in TV, I get really excited because I think, yeah, it's but that is how people talk. And (laughs) it's really cool. Like there was a show, I think it's called Young Royals. I think it's Swedish on Netflix. And there's a character in this dorm and everybody's Swedish. But then she's american and she just happens to be there but they speak swedish to her and she just responds in english and they never explain it but i'm like i know who that girl is because i'm sort, you know i get that character mm. and mm. yeah i just think there could be much more of this actually because it's it is definitely a real experience for a lot of people
0: yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and i mean i wonder if with poetry as well like i'm thinking about um Tim Clare has a thing about kind of the best writing happens when you almost get a bit of a category error in your head where you kind of Mm. put two things together that Mm, you wouldn't necessarily think belong together. And I wonder if having two languages opens up the opportunities for that a little bit.
4: For sure, yeah. I'm also... uh, I just started learning Italian. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) That was like my New Year's resolution, kind of, after wanting to do it for five years, finally. (laughs) And it's so nice. And it's really... I don't know, it's just really exciting. Like, learning new words is really exciting, and getting mm. to experience that also as a writer is quite fun. Like, I recently learned the word for whiskers. Do you want to Kay. hear what it is? Yeah. Yes. It's baffi. B-A-F-F-I. Baffi. Oh, and it's so nice. cute. <laughs> baffi. <That's very laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I think there definitely it opens up because... As soon as you like learn a word, I was in France also for the first month of the year and I was with friends who are learning, some who are French speakers and some who are learning French and I was saying it's so funny to be here and to read things because I don't have the same kind of understanding that they do. I don't get what that word means, but I get what it reminds me of in Mm. the languages Mm. that I do know and that creates quite funny moments sometimes, you know. So there's yeah. something nice about being in the in-between when you're also not completely fluent and you're sort of like swimming between all of these different ways of understanding for a while.
0: Yeah, you can look at things as being a little bit strange. Like I exactly, yeah. I have learned some very basic Hindi and one of the kind of early things you learn is uh, nice to meet you. Basically, it's mm-hmm. nice to meet you. Um, but actually in Hindi, the translation, so it says and it translates as happiness happened after meeting you oh right! It's nice isn't yeah. it lovely so I ended up writing a whole love poem to my husband <clears throat> which is the reason I was learning Hindi Um oh. and and like oh, it was really lovely and I wanted to get it engraved on our wedding rings and he was like I'm not having it was nice to meet you
1: written inside our wedding <laughs> <rings>. <laughs> uh... and
0: I was like yeah okay fair fair I get
1: It's something you say when you're like, it wasn't that nice, but I've got to be pleasant.
0: Right, right. Whereas (laughs) I'm like, oh, no, but that's beautiful when you think about it.
4: Yeah, it's so funny. I asked my teacher today because we were talking about family members and she said... um, I said, What's, is there a word for a stepmom or a stepdad? And she's, she started laughing and she said, yes, but it's not a nice word <laughs> because oh, wow. it basically means, I think I think it's matrigna and patrigno. And matrigna is like what you call the wicked stepmother in the oh, fairy okay. tale. So if you say, oh, are you a matrinia? Then people will actually take offense to that, you know? Oh, wow. So it's just super funny, obviously, like we have, You know, and it comes down to, again, um, you know, there are lots of studies about this, but the language that you learn also affects how you understand the world and it affects how you speak about things. For example, if you have a language with feminine and masculine and neutral nouns, um, depending how those are assigned to different nouns, you will think about the thing in a different way as well. And that's wild, you know, That and that opens up like, wow, so, so many possibilities for someone who's interested in language, of course.
1: And when you've been performing or or as an audience member in the yeah. UK, have you had any of those like where uh, those things where someone will use a, a Britishism or a UKism? And you're like, oh. I don't know what that is. Or you <laughs> yeah. say something and everybody goes, I don't know what that is.
4: For sure. I wish, you know, of course, my brain has gone blank. And like I will think about like, oh, yeah, totally like that situation. Mm-hmm. But I think the weird thing it's... is you live somewhere and you start to kind of forget what you usually would say or not. I have to check in Mm -hmm. with a friend of mine in the States and be like, do we say this as well? Or have (laughs) I (laughs) have I adopted that? Or she'll she'll call me out sometimes and be like, that's Mm -hmm. so funny that you've said this, you know. But yeah, I think it's cool. I love it. And I love the mixing of stuff
0: like that. So you were talking earlier about (laughs) prose poems and one of your prose poems that appears in Small Machine is a prose poem that appears in English and then in German and it starts Welcome to Berlin and it's about German bureaucracy and the immigration system and all the other themes that are going on within the book as well. Um, But yeah, having now tangled with the UK immigration system as you are sort of looking mm. to get visas and things like that uh, to which yes. you have my undying sympathy because it's it's a Thank fucking you. ball ache uh, <laughs> and i just wondered how a uk poem might be different uh to, <laughs> to the german version oh yeah
4: god i don't know i think like um i think it would be probably much more about oh, I'm sorry I can't help you with that, but <laughs> have you tried this way? And said, oh, so, oh, that's a shame. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, oh, we tried. Dearie. Okay, toodaloo, bye.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry I can't it's, help you, but I don't really want to, so. Yeah,
4: it's more that attitude of like, oh, well, like very po- like painfully cheerful and polite, uh-huh. probably. I don't know. I think, like, there's that side and then there's the sort of awful reality of like brexit and everything you know Mm. how how actual refugees are treated here like i'm complaining a lot about my situation as well because i have a european passport but it does me no good anymore because i came at the Mm. wrong time but obviously i still have it quite easy and yeah i mean it's yeah, it's brutal. It's really brutal. I think what's interesting is now I've been away from the U.S. for so long that I don't have a very good perspective of what, like, how it compares to there, you know, because mm-hmm. I think I think the U.S. and the U.K. are actually quite similar in a lot of ways, like, in the way that they are different from Europe or from Germany. Um, mm. I think there are a lot more similarities, and I know, like, someone going through that process in the states would probably be having just as painful of a time if not worse Mm. than what I've experienced Um, for the record I had my visa application rejected at the end of last year and it cost me so much money I could die Mm. thinking about it um, but I have been accepted under a different visa now. Just it's Yay! just like
0: painful. Yeah, it's
4: good, but it's That's painful good. Yeah. in
1: the end. Yeah, <laughs> poets no, don't there's...
4: have money to burn, you know. But... And there's no fucking need for yeah. it to
0: cost as much as it does. Um, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, it's uh, it's quite brutal, you know. And it, I think what's hard as well, which I don't mind talking about, because I think it's also maybe interesting for other people in in this industry or in the arts and creative fields, like the transparency. Um I was applying for a global talent visa like as a poet and showing mm. all of these things that I've done, like showing the big gigs and Glastonbury mm. and reviews and interviews and radio stuff. And I thought that I had a very good case and so did everyone that I spoke with, including mm. my lawyer who is a super experienced immigration lawyer, and it was rejected. And she told me that she I mean she was really shocked, like they were super nitpicky about not accepting certain things and you know things being the wrong format and yada yada but also she said yeah i've heard from other colleagues that this is happening more and more and so ace is the one that's looking at the applications to make that decision but the home Mm. office are the ones that are saying to ace be more selective you can't let as many people through this visa most likely you know and and it's just brutal and you think about like I was really when I found that out. That was in November last year, and I was really done. And I was thinking, you know what? I've had a really hard time in London. I miss Berlin. I came here basically for professional reasons. But mm. if I can't make a life work here, yeah. then yeah, then you know. And if if it's so clear, like you don't want me, then I'll go. It's fine. Yeah, if we're gonna uh, be a dick
0: about it, we can't have your art. Like, yeah, yeah, and it's
4: but it's just so sad because of course then you lose out. You know, I don't mean obviously not just me but like so many artists that could be contributing and and not just contributing art but also money and you know making their lives here and growing the economy and doing all this kind of stuff and it's Mm. just yeah it's just really really a shame that's all there is to say about it it's a shame yeah
1: yeah but blue passports so you know (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: where
4: were they made again (laughs)
0: Oh. I mean I get to be smug cuz I'm still technically a European citizen so <laughs> you? I got best of both. Of them. Yeah, I'm half Irish. So I got, oh, you an Irish, got
1: Irish. Yeah, I yeah. Got, you I got, got, got both, an Irish. Yeah. You?
0: Listen,
4: I'm trying to find a uh, English or not English UK based husband, but it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> Has not, has not worked out so far.
0: So. If anybody yeah. listening uh, is interested, you can contact the podcast. Um. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> well, you know, not anybody, but let's say. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you guys judge for me. Yeah, we are also <laughs> a dating
1: agency these days. Someone
2: with nice cheekbones who's not a shit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Someone read the book. <laughs> exactly.
4: Yeah.
0: Dead
1: actual I, darlings. Yeah. we're trying to bring lovely people together
0: <laughs> but speaking of good cheekbones I'm quite yes. pleased with the segue tell us oh. about, tell us about oh the life-size David Bowie pillow
4: oh yes oh yes <laughs> that's so funny Rebecca I thought saw that question and I was like I haven't talked about this in
0: so long <laughs> with anyone and it's
4: like this weird little known fact about me as well like that was like another life of mine that doesn't exist here. So when I was 22 and I left school, like I graduated f- with my um, BA, I had done a big show at the end of the year because my degree was in visual art. And I made these pillows, including this life-size David Bowie pillow. <laughs> and, um, and I basically had this print done on fabric and made like stuffed him with like, you know, polyfill. And, um, and he was like, okay, maybe slightly smaller than life size but it was like as tall as me at least and David Bowie wasn't very tall actually so just so so, yeah and I got so much good feedback from these pillows I made I made that one I made other like square pillows with like celebrity faces on them and like cats Mm -hmm. and things cats that were important to me things like that and so (laughs) I put them on Etsy and I started an Etsy shop called Proxy Shop Um, it's not it's not online anymore but for a couple of years before i moved to berlin i sold pillows around the world (laughs) the bowie pillow i made smaller ones they were very cute like i actually usually have one around but i don't have one here at the moment what was your best seller the bowie sold really really well well that was the one that really went like viral especially the like little ones um But it was a picture taken from, I can't remember his name now. It's a very iconic picture of him with the, um, that like big kind of balloon
1: sort of trousers.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The black and white ones that this Japanese photographer did that he worked with a lot. And, um, yeah, so very beautiful, I think, from the 70s. And, uh, yeah, they did really well. And basically they went viral, um... Just before I moved, like a few months before I left for Berlin and a few months, sadly, coincidentally, before he died, he died just before I left for Berlin as well, um, which was really gutting. Yeah, so that was a big part of my life for a couple of years and it was really fun. I loved doing the shop, actually. It was so, so fun. But I just couldn't realistically move everything over when I left and I was kind of changing direction a bit more with my work as well, so...
0: I closed it down. Amazing. Yeah, I just I saw that reference in your bio and I just was like I don't know where that's I I wanna know more about that. I wasn't sure <laughs> if it to do with in, the, in in yeah. Small Machine there is a man who looks like David Bowie. And- There's
4: a lot of David Bowie. I mean I love David Bowie. Yeah. No, yeah, the the yeah. Bowie affection predated the man, but then the man it was very exciting to meet someone who looked like him, I have to say. <laughs> As a, a friend of mine I told that story to was like, that must have been so great for you. <laughs> but basically, yeah, I'm a big, big, big Bowie fanatic. And if you want to see it, you can still see pictures if you search for life-size David Bowie. <laughs> Found it.
1: We usually wrap our interviews by asking if you have a piece of advice that you want to share with our audience. Now, it doesn't actually say written down writing advice. It could be advice about creating pillows and (laughs) stitching and stuffing and how to really get David Bowie's face looking great on a pillow. So please (laughs) take that question in whatever direction you would like.
4: That's too open ended. I don't know what I what I should say. Um, Just. Any advice? Well, I th- I would say in general, whether you're a poet or doing something else, maybe in a creative field, I think it's good to have a goal, but it's very important to remember that life happens totally not in the way that you expect ever. So you can work towards something, but it will most likely take you down a route that you can't even imagine at the moment existing. And often that's even better than the thing that you want to happen. So I never thought that I was going to be actually performing and doing spoken word on a professional level when I started doing it. It was just like a fun thing that I really liked to do. Um, And that all sort of came about, I don't know, not randomly, but it was a big surprise and I decided to go with it. And I think there's really beauty in allowing those things to happen in your life and embracing them um, and embracing surprise because yeah i think you can't you just can't plan
0: so just go for it amazing and yeah would you like to round it off with another poem yes (laughs) thank you that's a relief yeah so actually
4: i thought i would read something new
1: (gasps) new shit
4: yeah um, new shit (laughs)
1: we're gonna sync that up in the edit and it's gonna be great
4: yeah so i i wrote something just this week so it's not you know it still needs work let's say but it's the first thing i've written in a while that i was like oh all right that could be that could be something (laughs) so um okay with adam in the snow We finally resorted to wrapping our feet in plastic bags, but the water still got in and froze. Watching the family up the mountain, their young boy wearing glasses. Robert! They called him. Adam and I laughing at the idea of having children, at the idea that I could be mother to a... Robert! (laughs) Practically children ourselves, I loved feeling cozy, cold, swaddled in blankets, that cabin belonging to his mother's ex where we slept in the basement and argued when we weren't having sex or going for drives, how he offered me the wheel, how he liked black ice. Adam found danger exciting, and he was the perfect first boyfriend for a goody two-shoes Harvard-bound teacher's pet like me. We went through the Burger King drive through on his Vespa. The cashier cooed at us. So sweet. Or like sneaking out of that family party so we could touch each other up in the house to ourselves. Or sneaking out the front gate backwards so I could pretend I was coming in if caught. Coming in at five in the morning, brushing my teeth and leaving for school. No city drives like the desert. It's six lane avenues, it's 50 miles per hour, electrified and full of secrets, steering 3,000 pounds of plastic past the traffic. I found danger exciting, but Adam. Adam did my head in, the day they found the knife in his car, and the long talks with his mom, and the time he punched the wall through the bone, and his dad so disappointed, and the song we tried to write, and the night I found out about the other girls, and I couldn't fix their son, but I tried, and I tried to get the song out of my head, but it's still there sometimes." Fifteen years since I was 16, since I was with Adam in the snow, with Chris under the yew trees, with Ty in the greenhouse, with Jamie in the sunshine, with Tom in Rome. It didn't get easier, and it hasn't been better than that day up the mountain. I fell into the drift, and he pulled off my wet shoes because it was hopeless anyway, wet like we would never get dry again. I don't know what I've learned about loss. 15 years ago, I was 16 and on top, writing what felt like the most exciting experience that could ever befall a person, losing yourself in another. I'm 31, and I'm still a loser.
1: This month's book is Whatever You've Got by Molly Naylor, chosen by Hannah. Hannah. Why did you choose this book?
2: So whenever it is my turn to pick a book, I have a giant panic based on the fact that I mostly acquire <laughs> books when friends of mine have gotten something published and we try to not in- do the books that made it published just because we don't want it to be too incestuous around here. Um, but then I have, usually have a bit of a wild scrabble. But this time I am like really quite pleased with um, my choice. I bought this at... Uh, The Last Bad Betty Live, where I heard Molly Naylor read all of one poem, and on the basis of that one, I bought the pamphlet. Um, And that poem, oh gosh, I'm flipping through and I cannot immediately find it, but it is the one about um, giving her sister advice. It's, I was smug from talk therapy and a job I didn't hate, is a line in it. And... I'm getting old enough, I've just had a birthday, I've just turned 37, um, that I'm looking for things that speak to my condition in the some things are more comfortable and in some ways you feel a lot wiser and in other ways you are still living some similar realities. That was a taster for our our Book Club mini
0: episode, which will be out later this month, wherever you get your podcasts. In a moment, we're going to have a poem from Ned Ashcroft to play us out. But before we do that, what should our listeners be looking out for this month? What are your recommendations?
1: I'm going to kick us off. Uh, I've got an opportunity that I think is really cool. Starting from April 1st, uh, Verve Poetry Press are on the lookout for full-length collection submissions. They are going to be Mm -hmm. open from the 1st of April till the 31st of April. We've had plenty of guests on the show who've had books out with Verve uh, Poetry Press. Sam Brudgings, who was on last month. We interviewed Kayla Martel Feldman earlier in the year, who is uh, about to have one out with Verve. And we've had Catherine uh, O'Driscoll. Catherine O'Driscoll, O'Driscoll. Whose book is beautiful
0: like, in both like poetic yeah. terms and just to look at. It's just it's just lovely. Yeah. It's, if you want a pretty book, it's a pretty book.
1: The repeat beat poet, Elizabeth McGoon, who was on the the, the Darling Sessions a couple of years ago. We love the work that Verve Poetry Press put out. So we are very, very excited to to see that it's open again uh, for full collections only, not pamphlets and chapbooks this time. So you've got to make sure you've got quite a lot of uh, poems together. Um, The full details are on their website, which is vervepoetrypress.com. Uh, and as I say, they start. <laughs> the, uh, the website says that their submissions window opens from 0001. So one minute past midnight on Saturday, the 1st of April. So, you know, get them in early. And yeah, you can be part of um, Verve's amazing list of poets.
0: Amazing. My one is quite basic this month, but I, I stand by it um, Bad Betty Press fucking Rock. And you should, you should read more of their
1: books. Can we just take a minute as well to give a massive hand to Amy Aker from Bad Betty Press, whose yes. collection Mother Song has just been announced on Bloomsbury Poetry to come out in September oh, yes. this year. And honestly, yeah. like, just made me so happy to see that being announced yesterday. I sort of knew it was coming, but seeing the front cover and seeing it properly being announced was an absolute joy of this month. Yeah, <laughs> a and I can't wait to read it.
0: Yeah, that's going to be fucking brilliant. Um, but yes, Bad Betty Press deserve all your support, all your love. They've done. Amy not, is not only a fantastic poet, but a very, very good editor. And um, mm. yeah, like the, the 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 poets they have picked, it does feel like a really curated collection of brilliant poets who have been polished mm. and polished and made to shine. So yeah, go and check out one from them. That's my recommendation. Uh, and anything you guys want to plug in a more personal capacity.
1: Sure, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Laurie Eaves Poet, that's L A U R I E E A V E S Poet, or on Twitter at Mr Leaves, M R L E A V E S. My book Biceps is out on Burning Eye Books or in brick red cassette form on Buried Vinyl, and actually for all of March, because it's uh, its third year anniversary, uh, books and tapes are all half price on my web shop. You can pick them up. From my website, which is loriives.com, and you can stream the audio version wherever you stream audio.
2: Hannah Um, and I am Hannah Chutzpah, C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H, on all of the social media platforms. Um, uh, My website is hannahchutzpah.com and I also, uh, if you go to forward slash shop, you can get hold of my two books, one by published by Burning Eye, um, and they are available
0: online for free. I can write things in them, dedicate them, send them out. Rebecca, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter and TikTok as at Rebecca K Cooney, Instagram as at any name, but Becky, Facebook as Rebecca Cooney poet and my website, Rebecca K Cooney You can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at dead darlings pod, Facebook as dead darlings podcast. And you can email us at dead darlings podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so with money by donating to our coffee page, uh, ko com forward slash dead darlings podcast or you can leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and help us spread the word
1: in a moment we're going to have a poem from ned ashcroft it's from a new ep that he's got coming out on 9th of march that's going to be out streaming wherever you stream audio i don't know if there's a physical edition they probably don't do those anymore but check it out wherever you can i think it's called softness
0: but before we hear from ned i want to say thank you to him for letting us share his work thank you to our guest demi anter to my co-hosts laurie and hannah to texas radio for our theme music and of course to you guys for listening Bye.
3: bye, bye. it's time to be brave it's time to stand in my own two shoes and say this is my path my place I feel calm in this space, I feel charmed but disgraced by mistakes I've made, swayed by the prattling pirates of a truthless trade, preyed on by the sparkling sirens with their half-baked praise. All I'm trying to say, in this roundabout way, is I refuse to make music in any way other than the way which I know is the truthful way. I refuse to play these games refuse to be a slave to the plays to sit and pray to the craze to sip and take from the fame leave my spirit in the shade say it isn't because I'm vain that I'd trade these keys for a name (sighs) Bill and Ben would be ashamed so I'll say it once again I'm feeling kind of brave feeling like I can stand in my own two shoes and say this is my path and my place because I feel calm in this space and I feel charmed and graced by the taste of putting pen to page I think I'll say it once again. Man, I'm feeling kind of brave.